Mom said that Grandpa was the same way right before he was gone. Going on and on about them, seeing them everywhere. Grandma had warned her, apparently. Said it was a family blessing. Grandma had told her right after her and my dad had gotten engaged. Brought Mom into the den and sat her down with a serious look on her face. She had asked Mom if she knew what had happened to my grandpa. Mom answered that she didn't, and that's when it was first said, and Grandma's been saying the same thing all these years. The angels took him home. According to her, the firstborn males of the Broward family were always taken home. Not in the sense that they died, but in the sense that they just went missing, disappeared, and always the day of their 35th birthday. She said the angels came for them, to take them to heaven because God was lonely and wanted their company. That was all she ever said, but I remember growing up and walking into her room sometimes to see her crying on the edge of the bed. She never talked about it herself, but Mom said it was because she missed Grandpa. With my own father, I was able to witness the deterioration firsthand. That's what it was. Deterioration. Mental illness. It wasn't some holy illumination. It was a spiral into depression and insanity that ended with an empty bed that morning. They never found him. Growing up, as I was riding my bike through the dirt trails that surrounded our house, I used to imagine seeing him, his body, naked and pale at the bottom of some ditch. I wanted desperately to blame someone, but we had done all we could. Mom wasn't as sentimental as Grandma. She had taken him to doctor after doctor, who had, in turn, Loaded him up with bottle after bottle of Haldol, Loxapine, Trifalon, Chlorazil, and God knows what else. There were too many to count. They mellowed him a little, but he never healed. He never stopped seeing them. In the beginning, the delusions weren't very powerful. Mom said they started shortly after I was born, when my dad was in his mid-twenties. Normal for schizophrenia, if anything about it can be considered normal. At first he talked about seeing someone crouching outside his window, then in his closet. No one was ever there, and after this happened a few times, Mom was clued in on his condition. It was a little later that he grafted on Grandma's angel theory, after he said he got a good look at them. He swore that they glowed, glowed with heaven's light, and were absolutely breathtaking to see. Part of me thinks that he knew they weren't real. Whenever he talked about them, we gently but firmly remind him that they were a delusion. They needed to make sure he was taking his medicine when he was supposed to. He'd nod, his eyes glazing slightly, and say, Oh, you're right. Sorry. Then sit in silence, spinning his coffee with a spoon until it grew completely cold. His condition worsened with age. By the time I was in elementary school, he thought that he could talk to them. On several occasions, we found him out in the trails, staring into the sky and mumbling. There were no words, just broken syllables that drifted out through the slit of his mouth. When we called his name, he'd look around slowly, disoriented. He'd smile at us and say, 
the angels say hello. A year to the day from his 35th birthday, he took a dramatic sharp turn. I was in middle school and I remember it clearly. A breathy, high-pitched scream in the dead of night that sounded nothing like him. It was drenched in fear, to such a degree that he wasn't recognizable in the noise. It terrified me, so rather than running to see what was wrong, I pulled the sheets of my bed up high over my head and closed my eyes as tight as they could go. Back then, I think the angel narrative held more sway. I remember trying to convince myself that it was a good thing, that the bright, shiny angels would come and Dad would be taken up in heaven to have fun with God. We'd miss him, but that's only because God missed him more. I tried to comfort myself, cast the whole event in a good light, but the screams kept coming and I couldn't. It wouldn't work. I didn't sleep that night, and weeks passed before I found out what had happened. In the meantime, I only knew that something horrible had taken place as a result of Dad's sickness. He was jittery, and would stare at the ceiling corners, lurching backwards with a scream after minutes, hours. Sometimes it seemed like days. He barely spoke, and when he did, it was simple. Pass the sugar. I'm going to the bathroom, etc. He never said more than a few words. Since I was young, Mom actively tried to keep what had happened, what Dad claimed had happened that night, from me. In fact, she didn't tell anyone except my dad's sister, Lucy. They were close. It was through Mom telling her that I came to know. I stood behind my bedroom door and listened as she spoke quiet and slow. He says they took him. The angels, I mean, Mom said. They took him up, but not into heaven. He thinks they took him to hell. He remembers lights and sounds and sensations that seemed to pass over him in waves, while bunches of the things, the angels hovered around him, touching and poking him and sometimes stabbing him. He says it went on forever until he woke up in his bed, already screaming. Doesn't even think they took him that night. He doesn't know when they did. He was just remembering in his dream. He says it was more a memory than a dream. After that, all my lingering hope and the benevolence of Dad's angels were gone, but there was another thought that spun around and around in my mind. Dad was a good person. I knew he was. So then, why did they take him to hell? Maybe they had gotten the wrong person. Misheard God when he gave the order. But then, why did they leave him down there so long, to be tortured and probed and prodded and stabbed? Does bureaucracy move that slowly in heaven? Despite my mom's efforts, dad's account got out to the rest of the family, to my grandma. She came over to the house just as soon as she had heard, so she could congratulate us. She was beaming as she hugged each of us in turn and told us we should be happy because our dad was going to be in heaven soon. Mom emerged from her bedroom and said she had to go shopping. She walked out, slamming the door behind her and leaving me and my younger sister, Karen, behind. Dad sat in the gray easy chair by the door, staring wistfully at a ceiling corner. At around 11, on the night before his 35th birthday, Mom walked out through the sliding glass door that led onto the back porch. 
I watched from my window as she stepped barefoot onto the wet grass, her robe cinched tightly around her waist. She looked up into the cloudless sky and stared at the stars while her brown hair blew in the slight breeze. Her shoulders rose and fell violently. She was crying. The next day, he was gone. So then, from the time I was 13, I grew up fatherless, not knowing what had happened to my dad and torn between two familial factions, my grandmother and my mother. Grandma went on to celebrate the anniversaries of both my father and grandfather's disappearances, as if they were birthdays. She'd throw a party every year, inviting us and my aunts and uncle's families. Not many of them showed. It was usually just my Aunt Lucy's family, who didn't believe her story, but they wanted to play mediator. To say it caused a rift in the family is a massive understatement. Mom moved my sister and me back east, and we never saw Dad's side of the family, except for Aunt Lucy, and even with her, only occasionally. Sometimes Grandma would call, always cordial and in her high, pleasant voice. Mom would be short with her, answering only yes and no and speaking in generalities, but after a while, years really, she began to grow warmer. Maybe the relationship could have healed entirely if not for what happened on my 18th birthday. Like she had done since Kara and I were very young, Grandma called during the morning to wish me a happy birthday. I took the phone and exchanged the usual pleasantries. When I thought I had an opening and anxious to get off, I handed the phone back to my mom, who thanked Grandma for calling. It happened so quickly. All at once, Mom's face grew pale and her lips began to quiver. She said nothing. Her jaw clenched tightly, and she slammed the phone down in the receiver as she walked back to her bedroom. The door locked, and it didn't open until the morning. That was the last we ever heard from Grandma. She died ten years ago. Mom didn't attend the funeral. What Grandma had told Mom that day on the phone was, Your little boy is growing up so fast. He'll be with his dad and grandpa before you know it. I found out from Aunt Lucy. Mom never spoke about it. And for most of my life, I've tried not to, too. I got married and had a boy and girl of my own, and for the most part, not thinking worked. I was still careful, though. Knowing my family had a history of mental illness, I saw psychiatrists monthly. My wife, Janine, thought it was a little overkill, but I didn't want to descend into what my father had been. I would take every precaution available to me. That's all they were, precautions. I didn't really think anything was wrong, or that anything would be wrong. But then came my 30th birthday. As I woke that morning, I felt entirely different. I had to be at Federal Finance by 8.30 as usual, and... Other than dinner plans with Janine and the kids, the day looked to be like any other. It was just another Tuesday, but different somehow, tinged with something. At the time, I didn't think anything of it. I had heard that coming out of your 20s can be trying. There was no kidding anyone anymore. You weren't a young adult. You were just an adult, a growing older adult. I had never felt sentimental about any of my birthdays before, but... 
I assumed there was a first time for everything, and chalked my strange feeling up to the classic over-the-hill sentiment, trying my best to get on with the day. The feeling persisted, actually grew worse, as the day went on. I couldn't shake the idea that people were watching me. I felt as if the cubicle walls were one-way mirrors, and everyone was just pretending to type, hammering absently on their enter keys while their eyes were fixed and staring at me, waiting for me to do something. I could barely get anything done all day, and used every excuse I could to leave my desk and go to the water cooler or the bathroom or the building cafeteria downstairs or anywhere except sitting in front of my computer with their eyes breathing down my neck. As I was driving home, I felt a little better, even though I was confined in my car. The sky and open road before me helped to clear me up a little. As I got off the interstate, I felt a rush of blood fly up to my head. My vision blurred, but only for a second before it corrected itself, and I realized that I was pulled over onto the side of the road. My grip was tight against the steering wheel, and the engine was idling. It was like I was suddenly shook awake. Creeping fear grew inside me with each pound of my heart. I looked outside the car into the dark. The dashboard display read 9.30. Hours had gone by. As I turned the car onto the road and gave it a little gas, I heard a terrible grinding sound coming from underneath the passenger side. The car buckled and shook as I drove those first few feet, and I pulled off again to see what the problem was. As soon as I stepped out, I knew. The entire front end was banged up to hell, and fluid was streaming down to the gravel. Leaves and twigs were lodged inside the grill, and it was then that I remembered that I hit my head. I had no idea where or how, but I remembered hitting it, and I remembered blood trickling down my forehead and nose. As I brought my hand up to where the cut was, though, there was nothing. Nothing. I walked around the car a few times, noticing nothing out of the ordinary except the destroyed front end. As I looked down the road behind me, I could see a steady trail of debris, bits of plastic and metal that littered the road leading to the car. Looking both ways, I stepped out and followed them. They led over the median to the other side and ended strewn around the base of a large oak tree. The bark was stripped away on one side about a foot off the ground. I had hit it, I guessed. My head. I had hit the tree, drove away, and then pulled off into the ditch, presumably when I realized how damaged the car was. But I didn't remember. I didn't remember any of it. Also, the airbags hadn't gone off. That wasn't surprising, though. It was an old car. I walked back with my arms crossed, bracing against the coming cold. It was about 10 o'clock at that point. Opening the car door, I reached for my cell phone, which I always kept in the cup holder when I drove. It wasn't there. I looked around the floor and seat and back seat and beneath the back seat and everywhere. I couldn't find it. Leaving the car and crossing the road again, I thought I might have dropped it somewhere in the blank spaces in my memory. By the oak tree, underneath a twisted piece of front bumper, I found it lying face down in the dirt. It came back to me in violent flashes as I turned the phone over and saw the image that still showed on the screen. The more I looked, the more I remembered. 
but the memories were cloudy and gave me a headache. The pictures themselves were blurry and shaky. Some of the fear I had taking them came back to me as I stared. My car busted up against a tree, jutted in and out of the sides of some of the images. The tree itself was more or less in the center, but it sometimes slid to the right as the frame turned more and more to the left, away from the tree and the car. After around the fifth picture, something came into view. It was just a slight grayish color against the brush at first, but with each picture I scrolled through, the thing became clearer. As it came into view, my heart sank. When I saw its face, its terrible eyes as black as the blackest dark, I dropped my phone and threw my hands up onto my head, scratching madly at my scalp. My bleeding forehead. I, I had hurt my forehead. I touched, but there was no blood. The wait for the tow truck was terrible, and I spent it staring at the tree and the debris and the bushes from across the road, terrified that the thing whose image I had on my phone would come to view again. I had the car towed to the house, and the truck pulled in the driveway around 11 o'clock. April and Trevor had already gone to bed, and Janine was waiting for me in the kitchen. I hadn't called to tell her what had happened. I hadn't even thought to. I was so shook up. She must have noticed, too. She didn't say a word as I climbed the stairs and sank quietly into bed. The dreams didn't start immediately. For the next three weeks, I slept restfully enough, though my quality of sleep steadily declined to the point of insomnia. I would lie awake for hours while Janine slept peacefully beside me, taunting me almost. Wandering the house, I'd look at pictures on the wall and watch their faces distort and swirl in the dark. A numbness seemed to have come over me and stayed. I was numb all the time. It was at the height of my insomnia that the first dream came, like looking through tarnished glass. Clarity came in flashes through the fog. A table, the gleam of metal, a cold touch, and a window. People were staring at me through a window, waiting, watching. I had no idea why, if they were just observing or if they were waiting for me to do something. As I watched them, I realized I realized that they weren't people. They weren't people at all. They were more of the same. More of the same thing I had seen but forgot I had seen when my car ran into that tree. They were the same thing I had pictures of on my phone before I had deleted them. I deleted them so I could forget, but I remembered. There was no way not to. Then I was the one who woke up screaming. I was determined not to be my father. I increased the appointments with my psychiatrist and took ever-increasing quantities of medication, convinced myself that I was overworked and just needed some rest. Despite the pictures and dreams, dreams that my paranoia said more and more were actually repressed memories, I dove headlong into ignorance. Ignorance was easier. But I wasn't the best actor, and Janine began to notice a gradual but consistent change in me. I lost 30 pounds in a matter of weeks, and my hair was falling out. Not huge clumps, but thinning, slowly. There was no sleeping at all. Even if I was tired, I was too scared to. 
Every time I closed my eyes, I saw the things, and I knew they would come to me again in full force if I slept and if I dreamed. The year went on like that, and then four more, interrupted intermittently by birthdays, cocktail hours, April soccer games, school recitals, and dreams. Dreams that grew increasingly more vivid. I named them after a while, the creatures. I named them after people I disliked at work. There was Robert, the guy who laughed too loud in the cubicle across from me. He was the tall middle one in the dreams, who pointed through the window and waved. Then there was Maria. She chewed gum, smacking as loud as all hell. In the dream, she was the short one, who pressed her long, slender hand up to the glass as I screamed. The third I never named. He stood behind the others, glaring. It was about that time, I guess, that I began to believe as I do now, that there were things coming to get me. Not angels, creatures, entities like nothing I've ever seen or heard of before. They'd taken my grandpa, my dad, and they were, are, coming for me. Six days ago, a week to the day of my 35th birthday, tomorrow, I saw one sneaking around outside my window at night. It was too dark to make out its features, but I knew it was one of the three. I knew it was either Robert, Maria, or the unnamed one. It was crouching behind the bushes, staring with black, unblinking eyes. I grabbed my gun and ran outside, shouting at it. That needed to leave me alone. I wasn't going anywhere. During the shouting, the words, bring him back, came out of my mouth in a soft whimper. I felt like a kid again. Last night, I tucked April and Trevor into bed as usual. April asked if I was okay, and I smiled and said that I was. Trevor was asleep within minutes, and I watched his chest rise and fall for a long time. That's why April asked me, because I was standing there staring for so long. Janine took off from work, trying to help, but I avoided her. I snuck out through the back door and ran. I ran into the woods and didn't stop until I was maybe a mile and a half from the house, shielded from view by the tall oak trees. I could feel them coming, and I couldn't hold them back. The air was full of light and sound, and the trees were moving, swirling all around me as an enormous object suddenly appeared overhead. It was the darkest shade of black I had ever seen. There were no lines or curves, just impenetrable blackness. Then slowly, and starting from one side, the object became translucent, clear. I could see right through it, and see the trees still swaying and the stars stationary and bright. An immense heat came over me in waves, and I fell to the ground as a bright square of light materialized directly in front of me. I cried when I saw the figure that stood inside the doorway. It was a doorway and inside it was my father. He was exactly as I remembered him, but different somehow. He was smiling. He waved at me, and I waved back dumbly. Behind him was another man, just as young, but I knew him. He was my grandpa. He had the same eyes, the same as I had seen in pictures. There were others, too, similar but different, and I guess they were the rest of the line, going back generations to God knows when. 
They stood there, smiling and waving. They seemed happy. One of the things passed through them, and I realized that my father had been right. They did glow beautifully. I don't remember how or when, but they were suddenly gone, and I was left standing in the trees and brush as the cool night air whipped through my hair and the crickets, which had been silent before, began to chirp again. I, I don't know how to feel, but tomorrow's my birthday. I turned 35. Phantom Space Funhouse is produced by Nate Gutman and Kim Scharfenberger. Angels on Your Birthday was written, composed, and read by Nate Gutman. Please follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Phantom Space Pod and leave us a five-star review in iTunes. That really helps people find us. Also, if you like the show, please consider supporting us financially through Patreon. In return, you'll get bonus episodes, access to episode dossiers, and our undying affection. If you have questions or comments or just want to chat, you can write to us at phantomspacefunhouse at gmail.com or visit us at phantomspacefunhouse.com. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>